and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Loney to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Andrew is the founder of the Andrew Loney Literary Agency, one of the premier literary agencies in Great Britain. Andrew has written several nonfiction books, including The Mountbatten's The Lives and Loves of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten, and Stalin's Englishman, Guy Burgess, The Cold War, and The Cambridge Spy Ring. Today we will be discussing his most recent release, Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, which is published in America by Pegasus Books. Andrew, while Traitor King covers the period after Edward VIII's abdication of the throne, could you provide our listeners with a quick view of his personality and his very short reign? Yes, the future Edward VIII was born in 1894. He was the son of King George V and Queen Mary. He had a pretty emotionally deprived background. He was under a lot of pressure as the heir to the throne. He was a bit like Harry now, a very sort of charismatic and popular prince who thought he could modernize the the monarchy. But there were all sorts of character flaws that only those who, in a sense, worked closely with him realized. It wasn't very bright. He had no sense of public duty. He really just wanted to party, sleep with women, drink. And he was also a man who saw himself more as a German than actually as a British subject. 14 of his 16 uh, ancestors were German, including his mother. He spoke fluent German. He spent a lot of time in Germany. And he was always very sympathetic to what he called the Fuhrer Prinzip. He thought Hitler was a good chap. And this raised a lot of concerns in government circles, even before he became king. Uh, about his interfering in politics, about his sympathies, to the extent that King George V put his son under secret service surveillance and also Wallace, who the king didn't trust. So there were real problems about him before the abdication. The abdication is often seen as the man choosing love over his duty and the throne, but it wasn't quite as simple as that. I think they were looking for opportunities to basically get rid of him. They had encouraged him to take part in dangerous sports like steeplechasing, and he hadn't been killed, unfortunately. So Wallace gave them a prefix to basically manoeuvre him off the throne. There were lots of alternatives for him. He could have chosen to marry her after the coronation. He could have kept as a mistress or a morganatic wife. But he sort of was quite stubborn. And he, at that point, uh, this was 1936, when the crisis began, when he came to power in January. The crisis really takes place throughout 36, from his, his coming to inheriting from his father in January, right through to his abdication in December. He, he sort of let events overtake him. He didn't really fight. Churchill, who was a great supporter, said, our cock won't fight. And the problems really began when Wallace was able to get a divorce from her husband, Ernest, in October. And from that point, it became clear that he was determined to marry her. She, in fact, had said to him that she didn't think it was a good idea and that she should disappear out of his life. And he threatened to commit suicide if she did that. So she felt trapped in a marriage that she didn't really want. She enjoyed being the king's mistress. He gave her lots of jewels. She met interesting people. But actually, she had no wish to spend the rest of her life with this man who was a sort of man boy. He was uh, physically quite stunted. He had no body hair, for example. He hardly shaved, but also who was emotionally very immature. He wrote, for example, love letters and baby talk. So it was not quite the story we'd been presented with, a lot more nuanced and, and in some ways rather more pathetic. It seems that even though he was the monarch, felt very entitled and at any type of restriction he would kind of bristle against. I mean, he 
often chased after things he couldn't have. He was notorious for dating married women prior to meeting Wallace. As you said, he, he did not have that sense of noblesse oblige. It was all about himself. Yes, and I think we see this later in life too. You know, there is a strong sense of self-entitlement among some members of the royal family. There's a sort of trope, which the crown, I think, does very well between public duty and private pleasure. And there's some who just go for private pleasure, the Prince Andrews, the Prince Harry's, the Duke of Windsor, and those who clearly are like the Queen and who are determined to do their best for the nation. But you're absolutely right. He felt he could do exactly what he wanted. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for men from his class to have affairs with a married woman. Generally, once they'd married and provided them there, but he felt that he could do what he wanted and he was above the law. You're absolutely right. And he had this long-standing affair before Wallace with a woman called Frieda Douglas Ward, who was married to a liberal MP. He was actually, in effect, father to her two daughters. But as soon as he met Wallace in 1931, he cast her aside. He didn't even tell her. She just learnt about it because her calls to Buckingham Palace weren't being put through. So he was a very weak man, a coward in many respects. And... One of the weird things uh, which perhaps we could talk about is, is the, the relationship with Wallace, which was one of an abject, almost like a sub to a dom, where she bullied him, sent him to bed in tears, humiliated him in public, cuckolded him. And the more she did that, the more abject uh, and devoted he became to her. It seemed that she was the only one that had a power over him, and that was magnetic for him. Yes, I mean, Churchill said that, you know, she, exactly those terms. And, she, you know, she, she was the only person who he seemed to connect with. And people have speculated why that was the case. You know, was it the, some sexual tricks that she had? Or was it just that she was this mother figure that is what he wanted? But there's no doubting that he, he was absolutely obsessed with her, devoted to her to the end of his life. But she did not feel the same about him. She felt trapped frustrated, angry, and, and she took that out on him. And people were quite shocked about her behavior. So it, it's, it's certainly not the great love match that's been presented. Now, his father, George V, the king, was not expected to be the king. His older brother was, who died prematurely. Do you think that life of not being oriented toward being the king did not do him any favors in raising his own children? That's an interesting question. I think it was George V's character. He, he was a rather bluff figure, a bully. I don't think it was the fact he didn't expect to inherit. Uh, I think it was just his character. He felt a very strong, very old-fashioned view. He was a naval officer. He was just a rather hard figure, and, and Mary, Queen Mary was the same. She, they felt they had the divine right of kings, and they were not very good parents to their children. All the children had problems. David, who became Edward VIII's younger brother, Albert, who became George VI, uh, had a stammer, which I think was part of all this. I think that George V was just a disciplinarian by nature. He was a bully. He had been brought up within the Navy. He just believed in tough love. And I think all his children suffered as a result of that. Now, do you think it was prescience or kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? He was reported to have said about David, after I'm dead, the boy will ruin himself within 12 months. No, I think George V had very clear uh, knowledge of what his son was like. Uh, in fact, it didn't take 12 months. It, it was a bit shorter than that. So I think there was real worries about him coming to the throne, that he wouldn't see it through. Wallace, of course, had been on the scene by this stage for five years, though the public didn't know about it. So I think everyone was braced. And Tommy Lassells, who was the private secretary, who was a character in The Crown, 
you know, is often writes about it a lot in his diaries, there's a lot in letters, and I think the Crown talks about it. So there was a real concern about him coming to the throne and how it would, you know, how it would pan out. How was public sentiment about his coronation and the prospects of his reign? Well, I think the the PR spin was very good on 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 Edward the Eighth. You know, he appeared to be interested in the social conditions. Something must be done. He said about some miners he saw just before the, his abdication, and it was presented that he was a caring king who would modernize the monarchy, and would be a great contrast to his father. I think a lot of this was not entirely true. He had no real social conscience. Uh, it was evidenced with the way he behaved after he abdicated. He treated the staff abominably. He had no loyalty to friends who stood by him. He was interested really only in making money, gardening, golf, socialising and drink. So he had no very strong sense of, of what he could have done if he'd been king. He, he did nothing in terms of charitable work or working with arts organisations after he abdicated. It was a pretty empty life, and I think people realised that that would be likely. During his brief reign, were there any public indications of his support for Germany? Yes, there were indications of his support for Germany, even before he came to the throne. Uh, In 1935, he tried to interfere with the Anglo-German naval agreement, and then after he came to the throne in March 1936, he was very supportive of the German remilitarization of the Rhineland uh, and tried to interfere and play that down. So there were a whole series of, of episodes which raised concerns. He was sharing the contents of his red boxes with people, many of whom were not cleared to see them and who were sympathetic, including people from the German embassy. So eventually, Baldwin, the prime minister, was not supplying him with any documents that were secretive for the red boxes. So this was a crisis that was that was really waiting to happen. What was Winston Churchill's involvement in his reign and then abdication and the, the negotiations thereof? Well, Churchill was a great romantic about the royal family. He ran, in effect, the king's party. He felt that Edward could actually uh, finesse this. Uh, but I think he became increasingly frustrated by the fact his cock wouldn't fight. The relations soured immediately after the abdication when Churchill, who's prepared to make representations for the Duke to have an annuity each year of £25,000, discovered that he'd been secretly uh, skimming money from the Dutch estates, was actually far wealthier than he claimed and had no need for this annuity, and he felt he'd been betrayed. And then, of course, he discovered in the course of the war that Duke's Nazi sympathies, the venal nature of his behaviour, And so after the war, he would have really very little to do with the Duke, though he was still very protective of the crown. And if there was anything in terms of anything of any criticism of the monarchy, he would defend Edward in those respects. But as a man, he was appalled by him. There's a famous quote, I think it's from the American businessman John D. Rockefeller, when asked, how much is enough? And his response was just a little bit more. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the Duke was very wealthy, but he always felt that he was poor. He lived among very rich people. He sponged off them, people like Clint Murchison and other um, American industrialists. So he never paid for, for meals. He basically got free travel on the, when he crossed the Atlantic or flew. He never paid to stay in hotels. He, they borrowed jewellery and clothes and didn't return them. So he, he knew how to work the system, to, to, to use his celebrity, basically, to, to avoid paying for anything. 
and people had to put up with that. A lot of his stuff, he never just paid his bills. I mean, you know, even stuff he bought, he supposedly was meant to buy, he never paid people. And there was a lot of correspondence about that and complaints. But again, part of this sense of being self-entitled, he felt he could get away with it. It is ironic that the Church of England would raise its objection over his marriage of a twice-divorced woman, considering the founding of the church. Uh, exactly. So, so Henry could marry lots of people. So it is ironic, as you say. I think the church was used as a convenient uh, weapon, really, against him, in the way the Dominions, particularly Canada, was used against him, uh, that they knew as Supreme Governor of the Church of England, it went against the church's teachings. So they were able to play a whole series of cards, but they were pretty vindictive. The, the Church of England refused to let any clergyman marry him or they would be thrown out. The royal family wouldn't attend his wedding. So they, they were out to freeze him out and they succeeded. Only, I think, eight people from Britain came to the wedding in June 1937. How much do you think the ultimate goal of this was the removal of him as king as opposed to their concerns about the security of the nation? I think the two were linked. Uh, I think the the, the 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 concerns for him becoming king were partly that he wasn't up to the job uh, and wouldn't do it very well, but also that he was far too close to the Germans. He would interfere in politics, whatever the politics were, and that this was all going to end in tears. I mean, of course, at the time, up to 1939, the policy was appeasement, the, the, the determination to avoid going to war with Germany. But I think after the Munich Agreement, it was clear that Germany would have to be stopped, that, that there would have to be a line in the sand, and you couldn't negotiate with Hitler. And I think most people took that view by the summer of 39. The, the Duke was still intriguing with the Germans, even during the war, even in, in the summer of 1940, he was open to their approaches. He tried to keep America out of the war when he was in the Bahamas in 1940. And it was really only when America came to the war in December 41 that he really began to stop intriguing. So it was a lot more than trying to ensure that we didn't go to war. He, he, he was quite happy to sign up to a Nazi regime. And it's not like there was some great morality on the side of the British government or the crown because there were strong strains of anti-Semitism throughout Britain's history. Yes. I mean, many of his close friends, people like Oswald Mosley, were anti-Semitic. The upper classes had a certain, there was a certain strain of anti-Semitism. But even after the Holocaust uh, and the knowledge of the Holocaust, he remained pretty anti-Semitic and, and, and uh, his friends were drawn from those circles. So it was, it was a much more has was divided and nuanced picture before the war. But I think there was no excuse for anti-Semitism after the war, given what had happened. And he didn't seem to worry about that. His, his views hadn't changed. You mentioned Oswald Mosley. How much do you think that the Battle of Cable Street kind of then led into the pressure in removing him from the throne? Well, I think what's interesting looking at the police files is there was great concern about the fascist movement and Mosley's activities and how closely they supported the King's party. There were big demonstrations on the night of the abdication, big speech in London the day after he abdicated. And so they were determined that he should be kept out of Britain so that he couldn't act as a figurehead. And, and the groups were closely monitored. In fact, many of the people, the leaders, like mostly, were rounded up shortly after the war broke out. So the two were connected, that he would be seen as someone that they could group around. 
and Churchill's determined that that wouldn't be the case. Wallace Simpson herself had connections to the Nazi government. She had dated Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was then the Nazi emissary to England. Yes, I mean, she always denied it, but I think there's so much evidence that they were certainly close friends, if not lovers. Uh, it was said that she sent her 17 carnations every day to reflect the number of times they'd slept together. But he was certainly sent as ambassador to London because of their close friendship to target her and to work through her to persuade the king to be more sympathetic to the regime. In fact, a Nazi agent called Stephanie von Hollenhauer was sent to live beside Wallace in her home in central London in Branson Court. So they, they were very focused on the couple and trying to, to persuade them to basically switch policy to, to support the Nazis. Uh, th I think the, the Nazis hadn't realised that he didn't have as much power as they, they'd hoped for. In a constitutional monarchy, he was there to advise, but, but he couldn't order things to happen. But they certainly targeted him very hard right through, I would say, from 1934-35 to 1940-41. And there was also Wallace's dressmaker, Anna Volkov, who was a Nazi agent. Yes, I mean, this is something that's emerged more recently and her involvement with Tyler Kent. But there were lots of agents clearly circling uh, Wallace, being friendly with her. Anna Volkov was, was, was one of those. She was certainly supplying information, possibly also to, to Tyler Kent, who was a, a Soviet agent as well as being a Nazi agent. But there were the whole groups of people who surrounded Wallace and, and Edward who were of great concern to the authorities. There have been so many books written about the romance and abdication that it's just it's almost incumbent on someone to, to write something about it in England at the very least. Why do you think you're one of the, the pioneers in their post-abdication life and in studying that? Well, my book is the first book that focuses entirely on the period after 1936. You know, there have been books which perhaps devoted 30 pages, 40 pages to that period. But given that she lived for 50 years after the abdication, he lived for 36 years. You know, a large part of their life was lived after the event that's the, the, the focus of most books. And I think no one has really provided the evidence that I've provided from primary sources, from the archives and private letters and diaries, to show his active engagement with the Nazis as opposed to his innocent sort of trapping, being trapped by the, the, the Nazis. I think it's different to other books, too, in that I've got lots of evidence from primary sources, including diaries and letters, supporting my argument that he was an active intriguer rather than a dupe. And I think the book also provides fresh evidence about the rather strange relationship they had that was certainly not a love match, where she felt terribly frustrated and angry with him, and indeed had affairs all the way through their marriage, and indeed before that most notably with the heir to the Woolworth fortune, Jimmy Donoghue. So it's, I think, extraordinary, really, because, as you say, there have been lots and lots of books on them. I think um, these books, by focusing on the abdication, have missed the most interesting part of their life, which is that period, the last 50 years of Wallace's life, particularly after the Duke dies and she falls into the hands of Maitre Bloom and many of her possessions are sold off. So there are a lot of stories that have been missed by focusing on the early years. In some ways, I think it becomes a more poignant story and it shows the vulnerability of the couple. So uh, 
I think one of the things that we try as biographers to do is, though the cradle to the grave approach is very important, the, we're increasingly having to look at slice of life, that, that the childhood is important in shaping the person, but it's also important perhaps to take themes or periods and explore those in more depth. So as the anti-cliché would go, they lived unhappily ever after and seemed so desperately unhappy and having so little meaning in their lives. What was it like for you personally having to research and spend so much time writing about these terribly unhappy people? Well, when you write a biography, you try and find appealing elements to them. I mean, if it's unremittingly hostile, people will just switch off. I think you need to, 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 to make people understand them and to sympathize with them, to have some empathy. It was, I have to say, more difficult with them than anyone else I've written about, and I've written about spies and all sorts of people. But I just really found very little to recommend them. There are some very pro books on Wallace, for example, but their information really doesn't come from the people they worked with, uh, their close friends, and indeed from these diaries and, and archives I looked at. It becomes almost a black comedy uh, at times when you see you know, that the picture is not as it's been presented. So it is difficult. I mean, I did try and find some things. I mean, he, I think, was quite good with children. They loved their dogs. She was very good to him uh, a large part of the time, even though she was frustrated by him. She, she made sure he had things to do. She kept him busy, even if it was just playing golf. So she tried her best, uh, and he clearly was devoted to her. He felt complete with her. But, you know, time and time again, the picture that emerged was of this very bored couple living this very empty life, taking advantage of people and being desperately unhappy. And it, it does become a, a, a very sad story. But in some ways, you know, the more awful they are, the more interesting they are. Goody goodies uh, are not always that interesting. And that's part of his attraction to her, most likely. Yes, yes, perhaps. I mean, she she had, I think, low self-confidence. She Her first husband, Wynn Spencer, was a bully, beat her up, was a drunkard. I think Ernest Simpson was a much nicer man, but he uh, was rather dull. He couldn't give her the lifestyle that she wanted. He, in fact, had fallen in love with uh, a best friend of hers called Mary Raffrey Kirk. So, it, it, you know, it, her, her life had not been easy. She'd been brought up in genteel poverty. She had... I had to make her own way in life with really very little support from her family. And she was constantly seeking financial and emotional support and security. Now, what was their first destination following the abdication? Well, she was living in France when it happened. He was in Britain. He had to go into exile. He was uh, sent literally overnight to Germany, which he, or to Austria. He was going to stay in a hotel. The Rothschild family kindly put up uh, put him up in one of their uh, castles, and he stayed there until the degree absolute came through in the spring of 37. He then joined Wallace at the, the home they were going to get married in, the Castle Candé in the Loire, and he stayed there for a few months until the marriage in June 37. From there, they went to a honeymoon outside Vienna, and then they spent their time in France because they had a tax break there, they were able to divide their time between a large house in the south of France, subsequently owned by Roman Abramovich, and huge townhouses in Paris. 
And they lived basically in Paris until the war when they escaped to, uh, to, Paris, to um, Portugal, where they then took up their appointment in the Bahamas. And then after the war, they split their time between France because of the tax break uh, and an apartment in the Waldorf Astoria uh, in New York and visiting friends in Long Island, Newport, Park Beach and elsewhere. It seems like dodging taxes was one of his primary concerns for where they lived. Yes, he had this great thing. He never wanted to pay taxes. He liked getting things duty-free, which he did as a member of, of, uh, as a major general in the army. And that was the great attraction of France, that he was given this tax-free status. He was able to live at a subsidized rent in very nice houses in the center of Paris and the Bois de Boulogne. So he was treated very well by the French. I'm not quite sure why they treated him so well, except perhaps it irritated the British. (laughs) You alluded to it earlier, but what were their financial circumstances upon abdication? Well, he had given Wallace large sums of money even before she got married. I've seen share certificates for a million pounds being given to her. He certainly showered her with jewellery. And when they died, the, um, the sale of their goods went on for several days and raised tens of millions of pounds. He was probably worth several million pounds, and he made more money through the course of their life from the books they wrote, from selling access to them for television and radio programs, from canny inside investing, from uh, endorsing products from crockery to cutlery and linen. So they were always looking to try and make a fast buck. And of course, by paying their staff under the going rate, by not paying for their travel, their accommodation, much of their entertainment, they were able to save quite a lot of money in the course of their lives. Of course, he had become quite accustomed to the, the royal deference he had received while king. What level of protocol was he entitled to after abdication? But what did he demand beyond that? Well, he was still his Royal Highness, and indeed she was entitled to be her Royal Highness as his wife. All her sisters-in-law were. And I think it was quite mean-spirited of the British royal family and the government to deny her that status. It always rankled with him, so people didn't have to, for example, curtsy to her. So, But he insisted on those standards being upheld. People generally thought it was more diplomatic to call her Her Highness, to, to curtsy to her. And in some ways, he, he created the life that they would have had if they'd been king and queen with extensive staffs, 30, 30 staffs, uh, members of staff, livery, com- livery on the uniforms. He always traveled, of course, first class. Uh, they had three very expensive cars with, with their crests on the side. So they basically lived, lived this fantasy life of being monarchs. And that sustained, sustained the, the, this, this, this lifestyle that they wanted to have, that, that they hadn't really given up anything. He needed to impress her the whole time, to big her up, in, uh, in, big himself up in her eyes. And this was all part of it. So it, it, it was very sad, you know, given he could have had these things if he'd wanted, and he sort of cast them aside and then realized what he was missing. Was there much coverage in the British press about their activities post-abdication immediately after? There was a bit of a news freeze after the abdication. Uh, He was living abroad. There was a concern that he would upstage his brother. So, for example, when he broadcast, uh, just before the Second World War, uh, a speech to Hitler, though it was actually transmitted in the States, it wasn't broadcast in Britain. 
But there was some coverage, not always very favourable. There was a sense that they were living extravagantly beyond their means when people were having to be very careful during the war. A lot of, of stories about the extravagance of their entourage, people working for them, the number of suitcases they had. Indeed, there were uh, complaints in Parliament about their uh, extravagance. So they never really had good coverage. They were a bit better in the States, where when they returned, for example, in 1941 and went back to Baltimore, her hometown, large crowds gathered to watch them go to some of the public events. So it was a bit like now with Harry and Meghan, far more popular in the States than they were in Britain. Well, Andrew, I think we have so much more to discuss would you like to come back for another episode and talk further about it? I'd love to, and I'll, I'll, I'll do so without any distractions. <laughs> Thank you so much. Andrew Loney is the author of Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, which is published by Pegasus Books. Please join us next time for the second part of our interview, in which we will discuss the unsavory characters the Windsors kept company with, as well as the lavish lifestyle they continued with after abdication. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.